The second thing Satan did was divide Adam and Eve from their creator in Genesis chapter 3. And he's been doing that with every human being since then. We're all alienated from our creator by our sin. Ephesians 4.18 tells us that because of our sin, we are alienated from our creator and we need a savior to forgive our sins and to reconcile us with our creator, our heavenly father. And that is what the cross does. Jesus died paid the price of our sin in order to reconcile us with our Heavenly Father. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Netflix calls him the devil next door. And that's the title of their documentary, fascinating documentary. The Jews who survived the Holocaust called him Ivan the Terrible, but his real name is John Demyanyak. John grew up in the Ukraine, was taken prisoner by the Germans in World War II. He was forced to serve as a guard in the concentration camps. Camps where over a million Jews were murdered. After the war, he and his wife immigrated to America, settled in Cleveland, had three kids, and worked in the Ford plant. And everybody loved him. One day in 1986, that all came to an abrupt end. He was arrested, extradited to Israel, and charged with being the infamous Ivan the Terrible, who routinely tortured the Jews before they were sent to the gas chambers. The documentary keeps you guessing. One minute I'm thinking, guy's got to be guilty. And the next minute, oh, obviously he's innocent. The Israelis convicted him, sentenced him to death by hanging, and then the Israeli Supreme Court overturned the conviction on appeal as new evidence surfaced. So John's a free man. Ends up returning to Cleveland, but then in one more fatal turn of events, now at age 91, John is extradited to Germany and convicted on lesser charges for being a guard at a different camp than they originally thought. Once more, John appeals the charges, but then dies before the appeal could be heard, which meant that he was cleared of all charges and presumed innocent. But is he innocent? Or is he really the notorious Ivan the Terrible? We may never know for sure on this earth, but you can be assured of this. Now John stands before the real Supreme Court. And he will be judged by the one who knows all the facts. The same thing can be said of King Abimelech in Judges chapter 9. As the chapter opens... We're not sure quite what to make of this guy. Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? He apparently was a very charming man, lots of charisma, for the people of Shechem readily offer their support to him. Even the fact that Abimelech killed his rival brothers 
was not necessarily evil because nothing is said about the character of those brothers. All we know from the previous chapter is that the nation of Israel descended into rebellion once again after Gideon's death. So who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? We're just not sure until God tips his hand. And he does that in a fascinating manner. Judges chapter 9 is a dark chapter in the history of Israel. It is filled with conniving and colluding and conspiring that went along with fighting and killing and dying. Sort of reminds you of today, right? But just when we start to think that maybe things are spinning out of control, the Lord unveils himself as the Lord of history who rules and reigns on high. So let's take a close in look at how God intervenes to reveal the true character of Abimelech. And we'll look first at an ominous prophecy and then at an evil spirit and then at a lucky hit. First, let's look at God's intervention through an ominous prophecy. When Abimelech kills his brothers, one of them survives. His name is Jotham, which means the Lord is perfect. Now that's a hint to us that Jotham was a godly man, but we won't know that for sure until we get later into the chapter. Now imagine this scene. On our last trip to Israel, we stood on the top of Mount Gerizim. Okay? We looked down at what was the biblical city of Shechem, uh, today it is the Arab city of Nablus. Uh, the uh, Israeli army right now is watching Nablus very carefully because they had to go in there several times this summer and capture Palestinian terrorists. So needless to say, <laughs> when we were there, we weren't able to visit the city. Now just like Shechem in Judges 9, Nablus today is a very dangerous city. Verses 6 and 7 give us the setting here. Jotham must have had a good set of lungs on him because his voice needed to carry a great distance. But you see, there is a natural amphitheater at Shechem. So his voice would have carried, uh, as, as Abimelech is being crowned as king, Jotham hollers down to them from the top of Mount Gerizim and he offers a prophecy to the crowd in the form of a fable. As you read this for the first time, we're not quite sure what to make of this mysterious prophecy. Now Jotham must have been getting hoarse by the time he finished because it's a long prophecy. And it begins like this, verse 7. Listen to me, Shechem, uh, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves, and they said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which gods and men are honored to hold sway over the other trees? Well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. 
and that's why we call this a fable, for clearly an olive tree can't talk. And then Jotham continues with the trees asking the fig tree if he'll be their king. Fig tree also declines, and they ask the grapevine. Grapevine declines, so then the trees turn to the scrubby, prickly thorn bush and ask him to be their king. And the two-foot-high thorn bush seems interested. <laughs> In verse 15, he says, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. <clears throat> now, just when we think Jotham seems to be losing it, he transitions in verse 16 to interpret his prophetic fable. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, here, but basically he says, citizens of Shechem, if you have acted honorably in choosing Abimelech, then may you guys live happily ever after. But if you haven't acted honorably, may Abimelech turn on you and destroy you with fire. And may you lash back at him and destroy him. Okay, there's a prophecy being given. And then in verse 21, Jotham promptly gets out of Dodge. <laughs> and I hope he had a fast horse because I can imagine the Shechemites are uh, hot in pursuit. At any rate, Jotham survives. He escapes to the town of Beer where he finds refuge. Now then the narrative stalls a bit by telling us in verse 22 that nothing notable happens for three years. In fact, we're left with the impression that everything's working out, that Abimelech and the people of Shechem are living happily ever after as they work together to reign over Israel. So let's just stop right here a moment and ponder what has happened. You see, both King Abimelech and the people of Shechem have this ominous prophecy hanging over them, but for three years, nothing happens. So let's apply this to us today. Has anyone ever spoken words of prophecy over you? Maybe someone has said to you, God told me to tell you to move to California. Or God told me to tell you to take this job or marry this person or sell your house or take a trip to Tahiti. Now, generally speaking, I would be very, very cautious about such counsel, especially when others say to you, God told me such and such about you. Of course, you certainly don't want to disregard that completely, I had good friends who counseled me to go to Trinity near Chicago for my seminary training. It was good counsel. God confirmed that this was his will for me in a number of different ways. But here's the critical point I wish to make. My friends and family offered their word in the form of wise counsel and not a prophecy. You see, we have to be very careful here. If God wants you to do something or go somewhere or enroll in a particular uh, college 
or take a certain job, he's going to reveal that to you as you seek him in prayer. Be very cautious about someone who believes they have a word from the Lord about something you should do. Now there's one exception. And that is when a prophecy is made to you that perfectly aligns with God's word in the Bible. For example, when my mother warned me about a girl I was dating and whether she was a true Christian, my mom was speaking biblical truth. And it was from the heart of God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be equally, uh, unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or what if you're having sex with your boyfriend? Someone warns you that this choice will have consequences. Their words are not just opinions, they're God's truth. Because the Bible says, Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure. Now let me give you another illustration. I can remember as a young boy, when my grandma saw her nephew for the last time, came into our family gas station, bought some gas, came into the store, 37 years old at the time, and he was fast on his way in drinking himself to an early death. And grandma said to him, Junior, I'm afraid for you and what's going to happen to you if you don't change your lifestyle. And I believe those were words from the Lord. I remember it keenly to this day. A couple months later, sure enough, Junior dies in the Todd County Jail after he had tried to kick a wall out of the Staples Hospital because the authorities didn't know what to do with him. We learned later he was high on drugs, mixing that with alcohol. That was not a very common thing back in the mid-60s. And that sent him into a tailspin. My grandma's prophecy over him aligned closely with the word of God because Galatians 6 verse 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And sure enough, Junior left behind a wife and six kids. One of his sons, my second cousin, died at 28. Second son died at 46. The whole family, it's like they've had Ichabod written over that family. The glory of God has departed. They had numerous opportunities to turn to God but they didn't do it. Now make no mistake about it, Jotham's ominous prophecy over King Abimelech and the city of Shechem was based solidly on the foundation of Scripture. You see, Abimelech had murdered 69 of his brothers in cold blood, and the citizens of Shechem were right there egging him on, and there was absolutely no sign of repentance which meant that the clock was ticking. It was only a matter of time. Friends, God is not mocked. Psalm 1-6 says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. King Abimelech and the people of Shechem were about to have a rendezvous with disaster. But how would it happen? 
And that brings us to the second way in which God intervened. God intervened through a evil spirit. Verse 23 says that God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. Now that is entirely true, but this particular translation left out something that the earlier NIV translation said, and the English Standard Version, ESV, also says that God used an evil spirit to uh, stir up this animosity. And that's very clear in the Hebrew. I want to ask you today, have you ever run into an evil spirit? An evil spirit causes divisions in your relationships. That's his job. (laughs) Maybe you have found yourself fighting with your spouse. I know this is true of Sue and I. And you're fighting over the silliest of things. And it suddenly dawns on you. Why am I so worked up about this? You know what? This often happens in churches. You may have heard of churches fighting over the color of the carpet. Now, thank goodness we chose some nice colors for our carpet, right? (laughs) Pastor Cooper and his team working with him, man, they've done a good job. Okay? You don't want me in charge of that. I know zero about carpets, okay? Now, when I first came to Heartland, I recall that we had a congregational meeting about whether to pave the parking lot. When I came, it was, it was gravel, okay? And we also were deciding about installing air conditioning. Can you imagine that? No air conditioning. Can you imagine a summer wedding when it's 95 out, Okay. The vote that day was 34-31 in favor. And sadly, the conflict that uh, came about as as a result of that decision, it continued to reverberate for several years. Satan's a crafty enemy, isn't he? Now, whether you realize it or not, You have probably had many encounters with an evil spirit of division because the Bible tells us over and over again that Satan is the great divider. He's doing that in the Middle East right now. Is he doing that in America? Okay. The very first thing Satan did when we're reading through the Bible, okay, he divided the angels. Two-thirds remained loyal to the Lord. One-third joined Satan in his rebellion. We know that from Revelation 12.4. The second thing Satan did was divide Adam and Eve from their creator in Genesis chapter 3. And he's been doing that with every human being since then. We are all alienated from our creator by our sin. Ephesians 4.18 tells us that because of our sin, we are alienated from our creator and we need a savior to forgive our sins and to reconcile us with our creator, our heavenly father. And that is what the cross does. 
Jesus died, paid the price of our sin in order to reconcile us with our heavenly father. So Satan is the great divider. God is the great reconciler. But if that is true, then why does verse 23 say that God sent an evil spirit? And the first thing we have to acknowledge is that every square inch of the entire universe is under the ultimate authority of God. Do you believe that? It's true. Okay? A few years ago, Pastor Erwin Lutzer wrote a book entitled God's Devil. The incredible story of how Satan's rebellion serves God's purposes. You ever thought about that? That even the devil himself is God's devil. Lutzer says whatever mischief Satan is allowed to do, it is always appointed by God for the ultimate benefit of the saints. Satan is on a leash. And so are the demons who are under him. They're on a leash. God graciously gave Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem three long years to get right with God, to repent. But they hardened their hearts against God. And so he removed this hedge of protection over them and allowed this evil spirit to afflict them. And that is what God also did with King Saul later on. We'll see that. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the Spirit of God had departed from Saul, it says, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. But please understand, that didn't happen overnight. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul blatantly disobeyed God and made no attempt to reconcile with God. Then again, 1 Samuel 15, King Saul blatantly disobeys God and made no attempt to reconcile with God. You see, Saul had rebellion in his heart and the prophet Samuel was pointing this out to Saul. And then in the New Testament, same thing happens with Ananias and Sapphira. You can read Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament. It was because of their rebellion that Satan, that God allowed Satan to fill their hearts. So the obvious question is, does God allow evil spirits to afflict us today? And the obvious answer is, absolutely. Ephesians 6, 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The implication here is that if we don't find our strength in the Lord, and we don't put on the full armor of God, we're going to be vulnerable. We're going to be vulnerable to satanic assault. We're going to be vulnerable to demonic assault. 
And friends, that is why Sue and I pray daily for our kids, that they would walk in God's ways. We pray daily for those 10 little grandkids as their hearts and minds are shaped. God, keep them close to you. Bind their hearts to you. Give them a tender conscience so that when they sin, they will recognize that they have sinned against a holy God. And they will seek forgiveness from God. And they will stay close to God and find their strength in him. And if you do that, folks, Satan can't touch you. Now let me illustrate first with the Bible verse and then with a story from my own life. 2 Corinthians 12.7, the Apostle Paul, it says that he is tormented. A messenger of Satan to torment me. The, the Apostle Paul is tormented by an evil spirit, but there is a very specific reason that that happens. It says to keep me from being conceited, it was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now in Paul's situation, it probably meant some eye problems. The scripture hints at that, but we cannot be sure about that. Now earlier in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us about being caught up to heaven. And he gets to see this vision of paradise. Can you imagine that? It's awesome. It was such an awesome experience, Paul doesn't have words to explain it. And apparently this experience caused him to struggle with pride and boasting. I mean, after all, how many people do you know have seen heaven? <laughs> so, God graciously sent an evil spirit to remind him of his weakness. Now, I'm so glad this account is in God's word because it's helped me to make sense of my own life. And maybe it'll help you too. I've shared with you often my own struggle with depression and anxiety. And I've often wondered to myself, why has God allowed this? And maybe you have wondered the same thing. Some issue that you have struggled with in your life and you're thinking to yourself, why has God allowed this awful problem in my life? And one day it dawned on me, in my lowest point, 1995, I was right square in the midst of a wonderful season of great victory, okay? God had allowed me to pastor uh, during that uh, period of time, a period of time of 18 years, God had allowed me to pastor through two wonderful building campaigns, one in my last church, one in this church, and God had allowed me to see 18 consecutive years, 1986 to 2004, when the churches under my care, the last one and this one, grew numerically and financially every single year. 
But you know what God has to do sometimes? He has to remind us that the glory belongs to him and not to us. I know God has to remind me that once in a while. Heartland family, every success, the financial success you've enjoyed, the beautiful house where you live, all of your children, all the successes that God has blessed you with is due to the grace of God. And it can be gone in a moment. And God wants you to affirm the same thing that the Apostle Paul affirms in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. For Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. Boy, that's hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> I delight in insults. Oh, that's hard to say too. I delight in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. Make no mistake about it. God does allow evil spirits, demonic spirits to buffet you if you are a believer. But if you are a believer, it is only for your ultimate good. Okay? Very important to know that. All things do work together for good. Hang on to that. Now let's move to a third way that God intervenes in Judges chapter 9. And it's through a lucky hit. Okay? As Judges 9 continues in verse 24, we slowly begin to see Jotham's ominous prophecy being fulfilled. And we see the evil spirit has brought division between King Abimelech and the ones who were his biggest fans, the citizens of Shechem. And in verse 26, we see that Shechem begins to get behind a new champion named Gael. But Gael and his allies are no match for Abimelech. And beginning in verse 39, he teaches them a lesson. Abimelech teaches them a lesson for their disloyalty. And he decisively defeats Gael and, and company. And they all retreat to the tower of Shechem to make their last stand. That's Gael and his company. And what does Abimelech do? In verse 49, he piles branches around the tower and he burns them out. Which is so fascinating, isn't it? Because that's what Jotham prophesied would happen. Way back in verse 20, it has been literally fulfilled now because Jotham said, let fire come out of Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem. Well, that whole uh, fire trick worked so well that Abimelech said, you know what, I'm going to try this on a neighboring town. So he goes over to Thebes, a neighboring town. But this time, just as Abimelech prepares to start the fire, a woman drops a millstone on top of his head and it cracks his skull and it's a fatal wound. And so the second part of Jotham's prophecy also comes to pass that Abimelech is killed 
by the very people who were once his allies. Both prophecies fulfilled. Now think about it. A woman tosses a rock from high up on the tower and it just happens to strike Abimelech in the right spot. The world would call it a lucky hit. Is it lucky? <laughs> we know something else is going on, right? Verse 56 says, Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all of their wickedness. The curse of Jotham came upon them. I close with this. There is no such thing as luck. A few years ago, Sue and I visited the presidential library of Harry S. Truman in Independence, Missouri. Now, Sue was begging me to visit this presidential library. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, hon, I, you know, I, 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 I suppose I will allow you to drag me in there. And uh, so we're in this presidential library, and we learn that Truman is often known as the accidental president. Okay? There's a book by that title. <clears throat> you see, in 1944, as the Democrats gathered to nominate President Roosevelt for a fourth term, they knew they had to get rid of the incumbent Vice President uh, Henry Wallace because he was moving in a socialist direction. Okay, that's that's going to be trouble for re-election. So they had to get rid of him. When they chose a replacement, their number one goal was to choose someone who hadn't done anything. Okay? Uh, they wanted somebody who hadn't uh, done enough in Congress to create any enemies. Okay? That was their one number one goal. Can you imagine that? We're going to try to choose a vice president who hasn't done anything. Now Truman was a little-known senator from Missouri. He had no college degree. He didn't even have enough money to buy his own house. But he was likable. And he, had, and he became the consensus pick mostly because he had laid low, hadn't done anything, and hadn't made any enemies. Okay? So... He's nominated, elected as the vice president. Roosevelt flatly ignores him. Never even told him that we're working on this atomic bomb. So Truman had only been vice president for 82 days. Roosevelt dies and Truman says to the press, I feel like a load of hay has been dropped on me. Truman is best known for the decision to drop the atomic bomb on Japan and end the war. But I don't think that's why God elevated him to the presidency. You see, President Truman was pivotal in the founding of Israel. The book Safe Haven, Harry S. Truman and the Founding of Israel, tells the whole story. It would have been very, very difficult for Israel to declare its independence and win its first war 
apart from Harry S. Truman. Under President Roosevelt, the U.S. policy was solidly tilted toward the Arabs. When Truman took office, he was surrounded by all of Roosevelt's cabinet. They were a pro-Arab cabinet, and they kept reminding Harry, Harry, the Arabs have all the oil, okay? And they got all the land, and they got all the population, So why on earth would we want to support a few thousand Jews who want their own country? What do we get out of this? And it made sense, you know, from a foreign policy standpoint. But Harry S. Truman had grown up in a Baptist home. And he was taught the scriptures by a godly mother. And his mother said, Harry, the Jews are God's chosen people. And God blesses those who bless the Jews. So Harry sided with his mom over his cabinet. Can you imagine that? Eleven minutes after Israel declares its independence, the United States of America becomes the first nation to recognize Israel as a legitimate Jewish nation. And folks, It wouldn't have happened with Roosevelt in there, but it did happen with Harry S. Truman in there. Friends, there's no such thing as luck. God has sovereignly orchestrated the events in your life precisely to bring you to where you are at today. And the Bible says to you today, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, do not lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path.